All right. Good morning, guys. Oh, let's try it again. Good morning, guys. That's much better. All right. We are continuing our series through the book of Acts. And so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. We have them distributed around the space. Um, And in our Bibles, you're going to be turning to page 909. We're going to Acts chapter 1. And we are going to continue looking at this section. This is our uh, third week in this in this opening prologue of Acts um, 1 through 11, and we're going to be spending a little bit of time next week here as well. There's so much going on in these verses that I decided to break it out and just kind of deal with some themes because um, I thought it would really help lay the groundwork for our ongoing study through the book of Acts. This morning, as we read through this section, hopefully it's starting to become a little bit familiar to you as we've read through it a couple times now. Um, this morning, I want you to pay special attention to the mentions of the Holy Spirit as we go through, because that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Okay, so let's take a look at Acts chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. All right, last week we dealt with um, this whole ascension thing, right? The Jesus bodily being going up and, and into a cloud. And, and if you missed last week's sermon, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and get online and, and listen to it. We post them on our website, and uh, they're very easy to access and, uh, and listen to. This week, we're going to be focusing on, um, on the Holy Spirit. When we read this passage, um, Jesus really is the center of attention, and, and that's with good reason, right? He just rose from the dead. It's kind of a big deal. And he gets bodily taken up into heaven. That, that's also kind of a big deal, right? So, so he's at the center of attention, the spotlight's on Jesus, right? And then outside of that, we're focusing on the disciples because the disciples are still just confused, right? Um, and, and, and they're being led along, right? Jesus is like, it's all right to be confused. It's all right. Let, I'll just tell you what you need to know right now. Just, just listen, right? So, so we see the, the disciples kind of in the background. Well, there's a third figure in in this passage, and he's very easy to miss, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is present through this passage, Um, but it's very easy to read this passage and not even notice his presence, not even notice his influence or his activity. Um, And that's that's kind of the way the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit is is in the background, right? As as I was reading this, it just kind of pictured like if you were to go back through a family album and look at a bunch of pictures, and you're like, who's that guy that's in the background of every photo, right? Every photo, he's there. Every family reunion, he's there. Every, who is that guy, right? The Holy Spirit's kind of like that. He's he's always in the background. He's always... um, doing something. Now, here's the thing. He's not lurking in the background, right? He's not some photo bomber who's a creep. He's, he is actually busy, working, active. And, and here's the thing. Jesus was very aware of the Spirit's presence. Jesus was, was very aware of, of the Spirit's activity. It was the disciples who were clueless, and honestly, so are we. And, um, and so what I want to do this morning is take a look at the Spirit's role in, um, in this section, because um, I think for us to understand his role at this point is going to become critical as we continue to move through this book and see him become um, a little bit more of, of center stage character. The book of Acts um, is, is called the, the, the Acts of the Apostles. That's the, the full title 
of the book because when you read through the book of Acts, it's the story of the early church and, and you see, right, first we focus on Peter and the apostles around Jerusalem and later we focus on Paul and his movement with the gospel out from Jerusalem out into the surrounding regions. But I really think the book could just as legitimately be named the Acts of the Holy Spirit because as active as the people are, it's the Holy Spirit working through the people, right? Ultimately, it's the Spirit at work in this process. And so what I want to do is take a little bit of time this morning and um, let's, let's focus on the three times. He's mentioned three times in this prologue. Let's focus on those three times and let's see what this passage is telling us about the role of the Holy Spirit in this process. Now, the Holy Spirit's first mention is in verses one and two. Okay, so take a look at verses one and two. Uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, we talked about that. This is Luke, the author, who's referring to the history he wrote of the life of Jesus. The, we call it the Gospel of Luke. In that book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Um, that gospel ends with Jesus being uh, with his ascension. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. All right, what's interesting is when you first read this passage, the Holy Spirit, it's like, okay, that's interesting. It's almost like uh, one of those asterisks with a, with a footnote, right? Jesus is active. Um, Jesus rose from the dead. Um, he he um, is the son of God. He is God himself. He is clothed with, with glory and power. He is victorious, right? He's the risen savior. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. Um, he is meeting with his, with his apostles and his disciples. And then it just mentions, he gave commands to his apostles through the Holy Spirit. So let's pause with that for a minute and think about what that means. All right? Jesus had just told, we looked at this last week, Jesus had just told his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? Pretty powerful. Right? We understand that, that he is in his place of victory. He is in his place. He's, he's, he is God, but he's also the victorious hero, um, the God who became man, who ultimately defeated sin and death for us and rose again from the grave. He has all power, authority, glory, and the full rights of deity. But he still did his works through the power of the Spirit. In other words, there's a very real sense in, in which what Jesus is doing, he's not doing in his own name or by his own power. He's doing it through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's doing it in dependency. Now, if anybody could be independent, it'd be Jesus, right? If anybody could stand on their own two feet and basically say, I've got this, right? I've got it from here. It'd be Jesus, and yet what this tells us is that even in that moment of victory, even in that moment where he is um, standing in glory, he's still working in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Well, I think there's a, a couple compelling reasons. First, I think we're getting possibly a glimpse into the dynamics of, of the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is, is one of these big theological concepts that honestly, if you get too comfortable with it, it's because you've oversimplified it. It, it is really going to hurt your head if you sit with it, right? It's this idea that there's one God, one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? One what, three who's, okay? So they're absolutely in, independent in identity, co-equal in glory and power and deity, but one in essence, right? We are monotheistic. We believe in a single God, but that God reveals himself as being triune in nature. Okay, don't, that's as far as I can go. I mean, I can give you words, but I, that, that's as far as we can go with it, okay? So, so that's a mystery, right? But I think we possibly are getting a glimpse into how that mystery plays itself out in the dynamics of relationship. Because if there's one thing we know from studying the Trinity, it's this, that God is eternal relationship. God didn't create us because he was lonely. God didn't create us because he needed a friend. God wasn't, didn't create us because he was bored and he needed a diversion. God created us because he is love, not the concept, but the actual experience of love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are an eternal dance of love, an eternal dance of knowing and being known, an eternal experience of genuine loving community. And when God created mankind, he created us in his image that we might live in the overflow of that love that we might live in the overflow of that goodness, that we might experience 
what he is continually and eternally experiencing as God, and that is the beauty of, of, of mutually dependent, mutually honoring relationship, right? But I, I think maybe we're getting a glimpse into like that Trinitarian, like so when, the, when, when Jesus is acting, he's acting independence on the Father, I mean, so he was sent by the Father, but he's acting independence on the Spirit, and we see this mutual interplay. But I think there's a lot more going on here than just that. Because Jesus isn't just God. That's a weird sentence. He isn't just God. He's also human, right? The Creator became part of his creation, right? The God who created mankind in his own image became his own image bearer, <laughs> right? Again, more paradox. It's weird. But God became Man, which means what we're seeing here is not just God relating to God. We're seeing man relate to God. Perfect man, man as we were intended to be. See, when we see Jesus, we don't just see God in the flesh. We see humanity as humanity was intended to be. He is what we were intended to be. He lived the life we should have lived. And what that means is that Jesus is modeling or experiencing what we were designed to experience, which is absolute dependency on God. See, Jesus as man didn't do anything of his own volition. He said that over and over in his own ministry. He said, I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't lead me to do. I don't do anything that the Father's not modeling for me to do. He lived in absolute submission to God the Father, and then he also lived in absolute dependence on the power of the Spirit. Even though he was God, he performed his miracles through the power of the Spirit. Even though he had the full authority of being the risen Savior, when he gives commands to his, his disciples, he does it not through his own power and own authority, but through the power and authority of the Spirit. He's modeling a life of absolute dependency. And he's not just modeling it because that's a good idea. He's living it because he's human. And as a human, he was designed to live in dependency. This seems crazy to us. I mean, it seemed normal to him, I guess. But here's the thing. It's supposed to be normal for us too. When you think about how we were created, right? He joyfully walked in submission to the Father, and he joyfully did his work through the power of the Spirit. There was nothing attractive or noble about autonomy to him. Nothing attractive or noble about him standing on his own two feet, living for his own glory, doing things in his own power. He joyfully lived in submission. He joyfully lived in dependence. For most of us, that sounds horrible. The idea that we would live completely dependent on somebody else. The idea that we would live absolutely, completely submitted to somebody else's will, that sounds like slavery, not freedom. I have two reasons for that. First is because we're sinners. <laughs> when we sinned against God, when, when mankind originally rebelled against God, basically what mankind said was, you'll no longer be the center, we will. We will no longer live for your glory, we'll live for our own. You'll no longer tell us what is good and evil, we'll define it for ourselves. We will be like God. We'll be the center. We won't live in submission to you, we will live in submission to ourselves. We will no longer tune our hearts to your glory, we'll tune ourselves and of course, that resulted in the absolute cacophony of sin, the horrible noise of brokenness in the created order, right? So we don't like submission, right? It, we don't like the idea of, of my will being submitted to God because I want to be like God. We don't like the idea of living in dependence because we want to be independent. Now, beyond just the natural wiring of our hearts, we have the, the cultural wiring that is around us, right? What we call the American uh, myth, right? The American story. The American story is, of course, the great cowboy who can pull himself up by his own bootstraps, right? He can pull on his boots and he can pull so hard he can actually start levitating, right? He can pull himself up. He doesn't need anybody, right? He's the guy that rides off into the sunset. He's the guy who comes up with the solutions. He's the guy that, that can problem solve and, and, and stand on his own two feet and mark out his own independence and he can be autonomous and, 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 and he can live with people he wants to, but he doesn't really need people. He can be totally independent and totally strong. He's, he's this iconic, strong figure that we see repeated again and again. That story is celebrated again and again in American history. 
Even today, the cultural people that we lift up are often people that, that um, magnify that, that sense of absolute independence. They don't submit to anybody. They don't need to. They're not dependent on anybody. They don't need to. And what you need to realize is that's an absolute myth. The people who most fully realize the American dream tend to be the people that are most crushed by disappointment. You ever notice that? The people that actually pursue this and get it are the very people that are most tragically on the face of all of our tabloids every week in their self-destruction, in, in their, their, their um, outlandish living, trying to distract themselves from their own quiet lives of desperation. Here's the thing, you guys. We were created for dependency. We were created for submission. We were created by God to live in the overflow of his goodness. And in that process, we were never designed to be independent from him, to mark out our identities independent from him, to mark out our glory independent from him, to make our plans independent from him, to to establish our worth or to somehow become worthy of love independent of him. We were designed to be completely dependent on his glory, to live from his identity, not for ours, to live from his love, not trying to earn it, to live from his acceptance, not trying to establish it, right? We were designed to be dependent, to receive, and out of the overflow of what we received, to live out into the fullness and the beauty of of being a uh, mankind created in the image of of a creator, beautiful, glorious God. And so what we see is Jesus modeling this because it's true to his nature. He's not putting on an act. This isn't Jesus pretending to be submissive to the Spirit so that we'll have an example. This is Jesus actually living in dependence because as man, that's what man was created to be. If this was normal for Jesus, do you think it's a little instructive for us? Like if this was the norm for Jesus, that he ultimately would pattern himself in complete submission to the Father and seek to live out every step by the power of the Spirit that we also should be pursuing a life of dependence? That we should be trying to find out what it means to ultimately live from what we receive, not trying to live for it as if we could earn it, right? That's the message of the gospel. Jesus did for us. We couldn't do for ourselves. We receive the benefit of it, and then we live out of the overflow of those riches, So our goal isn't to grow to a place of independence where we can stand on our own two feet and to make our own way because the greatest freedom for us is ultimately independence. The greatest freedom for us is ultimately living in submission to the creator of life, the one who um, created us in his image so that we can live in joy and goodness out of that image. All right, so the next reference is in verses four and five. If you just jump down, a couple of verses, there's another reference to the Holy Spirit. And while staying with them, that is Jesus staying with his disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So they, they want to set the context. They had gotten a promise from God the Father. Jesus is the one who told them about it. Now listen to how he says this. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I read into this a little bit, I guess, but I hear a lot of excitement in Jesus's voice. Like, I think he might be a little giddy here. You know, like, like, do you guys remember that promise I told you? Right, remember God the Father promised you something? I told you about it? It's almost here, right? Stay where you are. Don't leave. Because it's not, it's not far away. Not very many days from now, you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. That promise um, was made very clearly, um, ultimately in John chapter 16, the night when Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples and he gave them a very clear um, explanation of what was about to happen to him, that he was going to have to leave, that they weren't going to be able to go where he was going, that he was, he was going to have to lead the way. And ultimately they would follow, but they couldn't follow now. Um, And he explained as much as he could that side of the cross. They couldn't fully understand the death, burial, and resurrection, but but he explained what he could. And then he said, by the way, um, there's another promise I want you to tell you about. I'm going to put these verses on the screen because I want you to see it. It's in John chapter 16, 6 through 11. Now, when you read John 13 through through 17, you you see this promise reiterated several times, but, but I wanted to highlight this one. And this is what Jesus says. 
Because I, that is Jesus, have said that I am going to the Father, to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, I'm, I've told you I'm leaving and you can't follow. And so you've, you've become distressed. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe in me, because right, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So there's the promise. The helper will come to you. The Greek word for helper is a Greek word paraclete or parakaleo. Um, one's a verb, one's a noun. Uh, when I was a, a new believer, I became, strange enough, I became a believer at a Bible college. Um, long story, I went to the Bible college as an unbeliever, um, really just to get away from home. But I ended up studying and, and God just miraculously opened my eyes and, and I became a believer while I was there. And some seniors grabbed me um, my first year and um, after I became a believer and they invited me into this secret society secret group, which on most college campuses would be something really bad. Um, uh, this was a Christian college, uh, and it was, still could have been really bad, but it wasn't. Um, and they said, it's the Society of the Paracletes. And I'm like, what? what? And they're like, it's the Society of the Paracletes. And this is what we do. We find people in need, and we meet that need, but we don't tell them who did it. Right? So, so we identify needs of people on the college campus, and then we take care of it. We take care of it ourselves if we can, or we work together to take care of it. And, and so I'm like, that, that sounds kind of cool. Do we have secret handshakes? Is there a secret way of identifying each other? There really wasn't. Um, and so in the end, you, you really have no idea who else is in the paraclete club, right? Um, but, um, but I joined, and it was a lot of fun, and, and, and we ended up serving people. Now, here's the thing. that The seniors that invited me into the group were, were kind of those um, athletes that were aging out of their athleticism. You know what I'm saying? Like those seniors who were still playing uh, a little bit of ball, but, but it's very clear <laughs> they're not going anywhere with it. And, um, and so they're kind of at the end of their athletic stardom and, and activity. And um, I wasn't much of I was a skateboarder. I wasn't in that club. And, and so I just kind of assumed when it was named paracletes that it was after a pair of cleats. Um, like for real, I thought there was some story that maybe I hadn't been told, like somebody needed cleats and somebody gave somebody a pair of cleats. And so they named the whole group after this pair of cleats. Um, and it wasn't until a long time later when I was actually studying this passage and was learning a little bit of New Testament Greek that I came across this word and ding, okay, no, it's actually named after the Holy Spirit, right? Because the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. And the word literally means, para means alongside. Kleet comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means to, to call out or to speak. And so it means to speak alongside of, to come alongside of an aid, right? And that's why it's translated as helper. Sometimes it's translated as encourager or, or comforter, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside us when we're stumbling. And, 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 and basically, you can put your arm around him and, and the Spirit speaks comforting words. He speaks life to us. He speaks words that give strength. He gives speak, speaks words that, that actually help, that, that comfort the pain, that, that give vision, that direct, right? He says, I'm going to give you the paraclete. I'm going to give you the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And his name is Helper because that defines what he's going to do. The Holy Spirit's going to come alongside you and he's going to encourage you. He's going to lift you up. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to enlighten you, right? Now, there's something really interesting about this verse. Um, notice what Jesus said right before the promise of the paraclete. He, he basically says this. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. That's a pretty remarkable statement, right? Jesus is looking at his disciples and they're like, you're crazy, right? We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. We can't even get along with each other, right? Without you here, this doesn't work, Jesus. And now you're telling us you're going to go away and that it's actually to our advantage that you do. That's a remarkable claim. Um, most of us think it's fairly crazy. I've met with people numerous times and, and they've basically said to me, Steve, I just wish Jesus would show up and tell me what to do. 
I just wish he was here. That would be awesome. If you just show up and tell me where to go, tell me what to do, get me out of this confusion, get me out of this middle space that I just don't understand, be a whole lot easier. What's interesting is Jesus is saying, no, actually it wouldn't. It's actually to our advantage that he left. In other words, there's something about the arrival of the paraclete which makes our, our situation better than what the disciples had previously. What he was telling his disciples is this. Um, we're getting ready to start a new act of the story, right? The act of the hero is coming to a close. I, I died, I took your sin, I satisfied God's wrath for you, for your cosmic treason. Um, I have won for you forgiveness and cleansing for your shame. I rose from the dead, right? So whoever believes in me isn't who they were. They are now who I declare them to be. They no longer stand on their merit. They stand on mine, right? And, I, and, and my part here on this, I'm, I'm getting ready to go. And when I go, it's going to start a new chapter and it's going to be the chapter of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be the chapter of the paraclete. And that paraclete, that person is going to change the game. This is what Jesus is talking about in Acts chapter 1 when he says the Holy Spirit is going to baptize you, right? John baptized with water, but man, stick around, man. Good stuff's coming. Are you ready for this? Because you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know when we start talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit, people get weirded out and with good reason um, because this is uh, one of those things that is just filled with all kinds of confusion um, and has created a lot of, of um, chaos in different circles. Um, some people, when they hear baptism of the Holy Spirit, they just get freaked out because honestly, they're just scared of the Holy Spirit. Um, maybe you come from the frozen chosen background, right? You're a believer in Jesus and, and you know the Spirit exists, but you, you prefer him much more as an intellectual idea than a real person who's actually going to show up and mess with your life and maybe do dramatic, crazy things, right? Others of you, on the other hand, are from the Holy Roller side. And, and you've seen the, the rolling down the aisle and, and what it looks like. And you're like, you know, that's, that's, so we, I know we've got lots of different experiences. What I want to do is just kind of give us a baseline of what we're talking about when we talk about baptism by the Holy Spirit. The word baptize comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which literally means to immerse, right? That's why when we baptize people, we stick them all the way under the water right? Because we believe that that's symbolic of what baptism really means, right? When you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. And so you go into death and you are lifted back out to life. You are immersed in the water in the same way that you are immersed into the work of Christ. To be baptized into the Holy Spirit then means to be completely immersed into the person and the work of, Jesus, uh, of the Spirit. That the Spirit is, is around you. He is with you. He is in you. He takes up residence. You become, in a sense, the temple of God. To be baptized into the Spirit means that you are completely immersed in the Spirit. Now, who gets baptized and when do they get baptized? Um, just a few points I want to make clear. First of all, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have been baptized in the Spirit. Um, because that just comes with believing in Jesus. Take a look at this. This is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. It says this, For just as the body, and by body there we're talking about the body of Christ, also known as the church, the, the body of believers in Jesus. For just as the body is one and has many members. In other words, there's lots of people that come together to make up the church. Uh, we've got many members, but we're one body, one, one church. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. How many people were baptized? All. All who were in the body were baptized into the body. In other words, the only way to become genuinely, you don't, you don't become a member of the church by going through a class. Right? This isn't, you don't just sign up a membership document to become part of the church. There's only one way into the church, the real church, the universal church, the true body of Christ, and that's by faith in Christ. You have to believe the gospel. And when you believe the gospel, you are baptized by one spirit into that shared experience of being the body. The spirit is what ties us all together. 
It's the spirit that makes us collectively the temple of the living God, the called out people of God, the body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And so when you become a believer in Christ, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that very simply means that the spirit of God now indwells you, right? That's, that's the biblical teaching. We talk about the Spirit of God being in your heart. Does that mean that he's actually in the, the four-chambered muscle beating in the center of your chest? I don't think so because the, when, the, when the Hebrews um, spoke about the heart, they were really talking about the center of your identity. What, what that means is that the Spirit of God comes in and, and basically so fully identifies with you that he dwells with you like a paraclete. He comes alongside you and he never leaves. He makes his abode with you. He says, my identity, my work is now anchored in your life. But what happens when we sin? Right? Doesn't doesn't that make the spirit go away? Right? Sometimes I feel closer to God. Sometimes I feel farther away from God. Like when I got my act together and, and, and I didn't sin this week, which is an ironic statement because you did, but, but I didn't notice it, right? The sins that I'm focused on, I was able to not do them this week, right? So I come to church and I'm like, yes, I belong here. I'm singing like, ooh, I feel the presence of God, right? Which really just means I feel a lot of self-approval in that moment. Um, but, but in that moment, like, but what about when I sin and God feels far away and I feel all full of guilt and, and, and it, doesn't the spirit leave? No. No, he does not. The Spirit of God, when he takes up his abode in you, it is a permanent dwelling. When you are baptized into the Spirit of God, it is irreversible. You are immersed into the work of Christ through the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit then works to apply the gospel to your heart and change you. Yeah, that's messy. Yeah, it takes time. Yeah, you're still a mess. But that's why Jesus had to die right? I mean, let me ask you this. What sin did Jesus not die for? Well, theologically, we would say none of them, right? He died for all of them. He, his sin is, or his, his death is adequate to satisfy the guilt and the shame of every sin, not only committed, but ever could be committed, right? He died for sin, singular, not 5,227 sins, plural, but sin, singular, the essence of sin, Right? When he became sin for us, he took on the essence of our rebellion against God and paid the price of our cosmic treason. If we can never reach the end of Christ's forgiveness, how could we ever lose the Spirit who was given to us to apply that forgiveness? The Spirit of God is a permanent gift for those who have believed in Christ. You don't lose them. Take a look at this. This is Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, that is in Christ. In Ephesians 1, whenever it says in him, it's talking about what Jesus won for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. So in him, you also, that's us, when you heard the word of truth, that's the gospel, the news of his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were then sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's two important things that we learn about the spirit here. First of all, when you believe the gospel, you are sealed by the spirit. Now this had a very specific and technical meaning in uh, the first century, right? When, when people wrote letters in the first century and they sent them, the contents of those letters were, were um, subject to uh, violation, to people could open up and read the letters, they could destroy the contents, they could rob the, the, the contents of the package. So when somebody sent a package, um, what they would do is, is they would take um, a, a, a wax, like, like a drop of, of hot wax, they would melt a candle on there, and then they would take their ring, which they often wore, they would have some sort of on a pendant, uh, a seal, because there was a symbol in that ring or on that pendant that, that represented their house. It represented their authority, right? And then they would press that into the wax and then it would dry. 
And then as that package traveled um, across the empire or across whatever it was going across, anybody who saw that package knew that it was protected by the power and authority of the person who had that, that, that seal. I want you to catch this. The more powerful the person, the more protected the package right? If you're just like this lowly um, land, not even a landowner, you're just a tenant and you have this ring and you put it on there and and somebody who's more powerful than you looks at it and says, I want the contents, they're going to break the seal because you have no power to bring consequence on them. Your power is limited, right? What God is saying, what the passage is saying is that God sealed us with his signet ring, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've been mailed, We're a package in transit from the age that is passing away to the age that is coming. And we will arrive because the the guarantee of the arrival is not based on the contents of the package, but on the authority of the one who sent it. We'll get there because we have been sealed by the Spirit of God. We have God's imprint on us and in us. We are protected. We are protected from outside threats. And catch this, you guys, we're protected from inside threats. God's work is not just for us to protect us from the attack of the enemy or the evil one. It is in us to protect us from our own inclination toward rebellion and self-destruction. God will transform us and he will deliver us. We have been sealed by the spirit of God. And that seal can't be broken and it can't be lost. The second thing the passage tells us is that the spirit of God is our guarantee. Now, a guarantee is a down payment. Like if you were to buy a house, you'd need to put down a guarantee or a down payment to buy the house. You buy a car, you need to put down a guarantee or a down payment. The word means um, literally a, a, a deposit or a pledge or a payment. The Spirit of God is the down payment of the full redemption of Christ. In other words, His presence in our life is a foretaste of heaven. The Spirit of God's activity in our lives right now is a foretaste of the restoration of God's shalom in our lives, right? Shalom, Hebrew word for peace. It doesn't doesn't, doesn't mean just a lack of conflict. It means the, the balance and the harmony and the flourishing of life. When the Spirit of God comes and indwells us, He is progressively delivering us into a greater and greater experience of shalom with God, shalom with ourselves, and shalom with one another, and shalom with created order as we work out our creativity and do our work and, and, and build culture, right? So he is, he is the seal and the down payment. Here's the thing, you guys. When we get to the new heaven and new earth, um, what's, what's the greatest reward we're going to get? Like this big mansion, streets paved with gold, the ability to float on clouds and play instruments we've never th- thought of, right? Is that, is that going to be the... No, the, the, the real benefit of being in the kingdom is the shalom of the kingdom. It's actually experiencing and being part of and in tune with the glory of God, the shalom of God, the flourishing of life as it was created to be. The Spirit of God in our lives right now is a foretaste of that. He is our seal and He is our guarantee. He is the down payment of the full restoration of shalom. So let's put this all together at this point. What we've established is that we were designed for lives of dependency right? That's how we were. We were designed to be creators. I mean, creatures, not creators. We were designed to be, to walk in dependence on God for everything, right? (laughs) For, for our life, for our breath, for our creativity, for everything. We were designed to walk in complete dependence on God for his glory um, and ultimately for our good. We were designed to work from the love of God, not for it. We were supposed to work from God's work on our behalf, not to anchor our identity apart from it. Jesus modeled that perfectly for us. And because he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die, and he won the battle we could have never won for ourselves, the Spirit can once again come and indwell us. The shalom of God can once again be ours, not because we've earned it, but because Christ earned it on our behalf. And when we believe in Jesus, we are Um, cleansed, and the Spirit is able to come in and dwell us. We are baptized into the Spirit. We are sealed by the Spirit. The Spirit becomes the guarantee of our inheritance, and it is irrevocable. And while he's there, he acts as our helper. 
He acts as our paraclete. His name is his identity. He is the encourager. He is the helper. So what does that look like practically in our lives? Well, take a look at verses 7 and 8, the last mention of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, or at least in the section we're considering here. The uh, disciples, so it's awesome. Jesus is like, hey, you guys, stick around. Remember that promise I made you? It's about here. It's about here, not many days from now. And they're like, yeah, that's awesome. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He's like, wrong question, wrong time, right? Chill out. Um, but, but let me redirect you, right? Let me point you to the really exciting stuff. Verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, so the call, when, he, when he's talking about us being the witnesses, what he's talking about is us being disciples who make disciples. We talked about that last week. Being disciples who make disciples, right? So believing the gospel and then sharing the gospel, going deep into our experience of the blessings we have in Christ and then sharing those blessings with other, others. And, and not surprisingly, that's exactly what's promised in John 16, that passage we just looked at. Let's go ahead and put it back up there. In John chapter 16, look at the end of the verse, right? He's, it's to your advantage that I go away, right? Because if I don't go away, the helper won't come, but he's going to come. I promise you, you're going to get the paraclete. When I go, I'm going to send him to him. And when he comes, this is what he's going to do. He's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. You're like, Steve, that doesn't sound very fun, right? I mean, honestly, the first time I read this and for a long time, I'm like, oh man, spirit's like Debbie Downer, right? Spirit shows up and the party dies, right? Spirit shows up and everybody all of a sudden is overwhelmed by their sense of sinfulness. They're overwhelmed by their sense of, of man impending judgment. I deserve judgment, right? See, here's the thing. I was mistaking conviction with condemnation. Condemnation is when the enemy takes all of our flaws and, and all of our sin and it hangs, he hangs it over us so that we feel worthless. That's what the enemy does. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he comes in and he accuses us and he shows us and magnifies our sins so that we feel worthless. We feel useless to the kingdom of God. We feel, useless. we feel rejected, right? We feel condemned outside the circle of blessing. See, that's totally different than conviction. The word convict here um, doesn't mean to, to bring under condemnation. It can mean sometimes rebuke. But what it literally means is to bring to light. When, when the Spirit is convicting us, He's bringing things to light. He's bringing them out of the shadows and into the light. What does He bring out? Specifically things regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then He goes on and explains, right? Concerning sin, why? Is He, is he showing us what great sinners we are? How lousy we are? How much we don't measure up? No, concerning sin, because they do not, what? Believe in me. The Spirit's activity is, first of all, to, to press upon us our need to believe in Christ. If you've believed in Christ, that is evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life already. Because it's the Spirit that convicts you of your need for a Savior. It's he, He's the one that turns on the light and shows you that you have a need for something outside of yourself that you have a problem too great for you to solve, that, that ultimately, no matter how much you try to fix yourself, you're only making the problem worse. And then he turns on the light so that you can see the beauty of the work of Christ, that he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He lived the life you could never live, and then he died the death you deserved to die, and he rose again so that you could have a bright and glorious future. So you believed in Jesus. But you know what? The Spirit's not done there because who among us can say, I believed in Jesus, and when I, when I, when I believed in Jesus, I was done. I had 100% faith. I was fully arrived in my faith in Christ. Anybody? Not a chance. We are progressively growing in our faith. There are lies we still believe that block us from experiencing the full benefit of the work of Christ. There are ways that we are still operating in unbelief that are blocking us from moving into the true freedom and joy of the shalom of God. The Spirit of God keeps turning on the light to progressively free us from those lies right? So concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So he's helping us to grow in our faith. He's not showing us our sin to condemn us. He's, he's showing us areas in which we can be set free, right? Concerning righteousness, why? To show us how unrighteous we are, to remind us that we don't measure up, 
to show us that, that we're not good enough? No, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What's Jesus doing at the, hand of, at the right hand of the Father? Just waiting? <laughs> no, Scripture tells us he's actually our advocate, that he is advocating for us. He's representing us. He's talking to the Father on our behalf. He is basically saying, when you look at Steve, you see me because I died for him and I rose again for him. All of his sin, all of his shame, it's gone. I, it's left on the cross. What you see when you see Steve is all of my righteousness and all of my goodness. See, the Spirit of God is continually reminding me that I am a son of God because I desperately have a very hard time believing it. I have a really hard time believing it. I continually have a hard time believing that I don't have to work for my acceptance with God. I have a hard time believing that I don't have to measure up, that, that sometimes God's more pleased with me when I behave well, right? That lie that somehow I am more worthy if I can somehow just fix myself a little. No, the Spirit of God keeps reminding me you can't make yourself more loved because you can't make yourself more righteous. You have to throw yourself completely on the righteousness of Christ. You have to abandon yourself completely to the work of Christ on your behalf and rest on that. Work from your acceptance, not for it. That's what the Spirit of God's doing. He's turning on that light over and over and over again and showing me that Christ's love is sufficient. Christ's work is sufficient. I'm invited to rest instead of to work. And then he says... Um, Concerning judgment. Why? Because I'm judged and I'm worthy of it? Is that, is that what the Spirit's going to convict me of? That I'm the biggest idiot on the face of the earth? That I can never measure up? That I'll never be a true man? That I'm going to... No, it's because of the ruler of this world has been judged. That the enemy has been judged. The greatest problem has been solved. My treason has been paid for. The, the, the judgment is satisfied. See, the Spirit of God has to keep reminding me. You know why? Because my heart keeps condemning me. So the Spirit of God keeps turning on the light of the gospel. So this is what I want you to see. What we're describing here is the work of the Spirit in helping us go deep with the gospel in our own experience, right? Because you don't just believe the gospel and then get down to the hard work of being religious, right? Okay, I believe the gospel. I'm good. Now I better fix myself. That's what a lot of us believe. And that's what a lot of us try. And that's why we live such miserable Christian lives, Right? We talk about, oh, the joy of the Lord, and you look inside our heart and there's no joy at all. Right? Here's the thing. What this does is the Spirit of God drives the gospel down deep into deeper and deeper and deeper experiences of faith so that we can experience at a deeper and deeper level the love of God and the freedom of God's love for us. In other words, he's helping us be good disciples. He's helping us grow in our faith. And as he does deep work in us, he'll do more and more work through us. Right? Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you're going to be my witnesses. The Spirit of God is going to come on you with power and you will be my witnesses. What I want you to see is we're not supposed to be witnesses of things we're not actually experiencing. We're not supposed to say, hey, there's a lot of joy in Jesus. I'm sure somebody's got it. Hey, there's all kinds of freedom in Jesus. I've seen it everywhere else. We're supposed to testify, be a powerful witness of how God is loving us and in that love, freeing us and then inviting people into that redemptive flow. Don't you want to be loved by God in that way? Don't you want a taste of that grace? Aren't you tired of working and working and working for your own identity and never measuring up? Wouldn't you just love to have the affection of the Father? And as we witness and testify of the deep work of God's love in us, the Spirit of God works through that to convict other people of sin, not condemn them, but turn on the light and show them that their sin's been paid for in Christ too. And other people become believers through that process. We've been baptized in the Spirit of God so that we can learn the beauty of living independence on God. So here's the final word on this, you guys. Here's the beauty of this. It means, one, um, we have a tremendous responsibility. 
right? God has given us the responsibility of going deep in the gospel, of applying ourselves, of learning the word of God and growing in our relationship with God. And, and yes, he's done all the work, but there is a sense in which the scripture tells us, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness, right? There's, there's this idea that we need to grow. We need to apply ourselves to this stuff. We're responsible, but we're not accountable. I'm not on the hook. Like if I don't establish some, here's the thing. In the end, any growth I have, is the fruit of dependence on the Spirit of God. God is the one who produces the fruit. God is the one who changed my heart. God is the one who sets me free. God is the one who won my victory and delivers me into that victory. I'm responsible, but I'm not accountable. And it's true with my witness as well. I'm responsible to share with others the love of Christ, but I'm not accountable for what they do with it. That allows me to fail. I can share the love of Christ with my neighbor and have them look at me like I'm crazy. That's happened right? I can have a conversation with them about how God has changed my life. And wouldn't you like to taste it too? And they're like, you believe in God? Okay, let's start there. Yeah. Okay. Theism, right? That we'll start there and then we'll get to Jesus later, right? So, so yeah, it allows me to move into those conversations to look like I'm crazy, but not to be threatened by it. And, and when people reject me, or maybe I share the gospel a hundred times and nobody believes the gospel, I'm not a failure. I'm responsible. I'm not accountable. It's the spirit of God who turns on the light. It's the spirit of God who does the work. And as I move forward in faith, bearing that responsibility with, with, with all the solemnity and, and, and with all of the, the, the awe that, that the Spirit of God, God himself has entrusted with me the greatest message ever given to the face of the earth, right? As I move forward with that, God actually uses those steps of faith to deliver me into a deeper experience of grace. So we have the Spirit of God. We've been baptized into the Spirit of God. And He is deeply at work within us and He is deeply working through us. And I invite you this morning to consider the redemptive flow of the Spirit of God in your life. I'm going to put some questions up on the screen. I'm going to ask you to take a little bit of time and pray and, and do some business with, with God. Let him, let him enlighten you. That's what He does. Um, about what it is that, that He wants to either convict you about or encourage you about or, or invite you into greater change or freedom. Right? Um, and then we're going to share communion together. We'll do that in a moment. Okay, we'll introduce that in a second. Let me pray for us, and we'll go into a time of reflection. Father, I thank you that it's all your work, that you sent Jesus um, when we rebelled against you, not to condemn us or to crush us, but to redeem us. And then, um, after he rose from the dead, you um, gave us your spirit to take the work of Christ and apply it personally to our lives so that we might experience greater and greater levels of freedom and joy. Father, I pray for those this morning that are hurt. And they know their pain. And they know what it is that hurts. Spirit, I pray that you would be the comforter to them this morning. That you would give them deep encouragement, the kind of encouragement that doesn't come from words, the kind of encouragement that doesn't come um, just from knowing the right things, but that deep, deep, deep experience of being loved. I pray, Lord, that you would invite them in to that comfort of knowing they're delighted in in spite of their pain and in spite of what's going wrong or what hurts. You're telling a greater story that ultimately will result in praise and glory and freedom and light. I pray for those, Lord, that are full of excitement and joy at what's in front of them, that you would save them from feeling invincible and the feelings of, that come when things are going our way as if somehow it's because we did the right things or we accomplished enough or somehow we could take credit for it. I pray, Lord, that you will give us that humble confidence, humility in the face of success and confidence in the face of failure and suffering that allows us to delight. Spirit, this is your work in us, and so we just ask you would deliver us into a deeper experience of it. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.